open your word that your Holy Spirit would teach us, Lord. Convict us where we need convicting. Encourage us where we need encouragement, Lord. But most of all, that you would be honored and glorified through the word and through the reading of it, Lord Jesus. We just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we'll be continuing in our series in Romans, uh, starting in chapter 2, verse 12. If you've been tracking with us here, if you'll recall from previous weeks, uh, Paul is writing to the church in Rome. He's not yet had the opportunity to visit Rome, but he desires to so that he can encourage them and proclaim the gospel. He exhorts them to live by faith, and then he shifts to focusing on sin and God's wrath on sinful man. Last week, we covered God's judgment on sinful man and what role the believer has in judgment. This morning in verse 12, Paul shifts his focus more primarily to the law and the Jews in Rome. He refers to subjects like the law and circumcision, which were areas that the Jews took great pride in, but also put undue trust in. His appeal to the Jewish people is to not place their faith in outward actions, but to the inward desires and motivations of the heart. To not only have the appearance of righteousness, but to live in a holy manner as well. As we read this morning's text, uh, I would like us to keep in mind the content here, and not just specifically the original intended audience. By God's providence, he has preserved his word here for us today, Although we may not be of Jewish descent, or maybe some of us are, but there is a lot we can glean here from the word. A couple of major themes you will see in this morning's text are to let your actions speak louder than your words and to avoid hypocrisy. Don't place your faith in the picture that you paint for yourself to others around you, but rather examine the condition of your heart. So with that introduction, would you please stand with me, if you are able, for the reading of God's word. Romans 2, verse 12 through 29. All who sin without the law will also perish without the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So when Gentiles, who do not by nature have the law, do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either accuse or even excuse them on the day when God judges what people have kept secret, according to my gospel through Christ Jesus. Now, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, and know his will, and approve the things that are superior, being instructed from the law. And if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light to those in the darkness, an instructor of the ignorant, a teacher of the immature, having the embodiment of knowledge and truth in the law, you then, who teach another, don't you teach yourself? You who preach, you must not steal. Do you steal? 
You who say you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who detest idols, do you rob their temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision benefits you if you observe the law, but if you are a lawbreaker, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if an uncircumcised man keeps the law's requirements, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? A man who is physically uncircumcised but who keeps the law will judge you who are a lawbreaker in spite of having the letter of the law and circumcision. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and the circumcision is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. That person's praise is not from people, but from God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. To better understand the context of this morning's text, I think it's important to go over a couple things first before we get too far. You can see here in the second half of chapter 2, Paul really shifts his focus to the Jewish people and to the law. For thousands of years, the Jewish people have been God's people. God has made a covenant with them and handed down his law and commandments to them. The entirety of the Old Testament tracks this relationship between God and his people, the Jews. The Gentiles, the outsiders, were seen as sinners outside of the promises of God. It would be natural for Jewish people to have a sense that they are something better or more important to God than the Gentiles. The law was passed down from generation to generation And spiritual leaders at the time would make it their life's work to know the law and to instruct the law. So it's important to understand that at the time, the Jews, and more specifically the Jewish spiritual leaders, they thought they had it all together. They thought they were the shining example, a shining light in a dark world. It wasn't until Christ came into the spotlight that their place of spiritual authority even came into question. In a moment, I'll ask you to turn to 1 Galatians, uh, Galatians 1, excuse me, verses 11 with me. Here, Paul makes it clear that he has the credentials to be taken seriously by the Jews. Paul was in a place of authority to speak boldly to the Jewish people, to the scribes and to the Pharisees. He himself was a devout Jew, and in fact, a persecutor of the Christian church prior to his transformation. Turn with me, if you would, to First Galatians, or Galatians chapter 1, verse 11, if you would. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. 
But when he had set me apart before I was born, and he who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem and those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So when Paul speaks boldly to the Jews, he has the credentials. He has their ear. It is not as if he is an outsider trying to analyze their faith. He has been there. He knows the law. He knows the traditions. He knows the heart condition. And he knows the need for Christ. It is no surprise that Paul starts his argument for Christ with the law. The danger that the Jews faced and that we face today is to place your faith in the law and traditions rather than in God. We are all incapable of keeping God's law, and apart from Christ, we are doomed to fail. Verses 12 through 16 says, All who sin without the law will also perish without the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So when Gentiles who do not by nature have the law do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their conscience confirms this. Their competing thoughts either accuse or even excuse them on the day when God judges what people have kept secret according to my gospel through Christ Jesus. Now I think it'll be helpful for us to try to look at this from a couple different angles. First, from the Gentile. The Gentile, by nature, did not have the law like the Jews did. They would not have had exposure to the law of God like the Jews did. And apart from interactions with the Jews, <coughs> excuse me, apart from interactions with the Jews or a special revelation. So the example Paul is giving here is assuming someone who does not know the word of God and has not been exposed to it. He says, all who sin without the law will also perish without the law. So does this mean that those who have not heard of the word of God are exempt from judgment? No, if you will recall from Romans 1 verse 20, Paul says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So rather, I would argue that they will be judged according to what they can be, given the knowledge that they were exposed to. Men by nature do have a conscience given by God, and that, combined with the revelation of his invisible attributes, becomes a law unto itself. The point Paul is trying to make here is that a Gentile who does not keep all the law of Moses will not be judged the same as a Jew that does not keep all the law of Moses. The Jew, on the other hand, who has the law, and he is therefore will be judged according to the law. The bar is set higher, if you will. It is not good enough to know the law, you must also live it as well. For the hearers of the word are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Likewise, we as Christians today, 
who know the word of God are held to a higher standard as well. It is not good enough for us to know the word of God. We need to live it. Is it written on our hearts? Are we not merely hearers of the word, but doers as well? Do we go to church on Sunday, but then live the remainder of the week like the rest of the world? These are important questions for us to ask ourselves. The doers of the law will be justified. Our actions will speak louder than our words. If the law is written on our hearts, then our actions will show it. God judges what people have kept secret. There's an old saying, not sure where I heard it from, but the saying is that nothing stays a secret forever. This is so true, am I right? How often do you hear about a scandal coming to light in the life of a famous celebrity or politician or spiritual leader? Seemingly righteous citizens living completely secret, wicked lives behind closed doors. Putting on the appearance of righteousness, but the sin buried in their hearts becomes manifest through their actions, and eventually it's exposed. Very rarely can something remain hidden on earth, but in the end, when we stand before God in judgment, nothing remains hidden from God. It doesn't matter if we can fool man, God will not be fooled. God doesn't want us to merely know his word. We are called to act on it, to be doers of the word, to live in a manner worthy of our calling. Amen? Verses 17 through 20. Now if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are superior being instructed from the law, and if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the ignorant, a teacher of the immature, having the embodiment of knowledge and truth in the law. Let's take a look at the person that Paul is describing here. He paints a pretty detailed picture. Excuse me. Verse 17 starts with, Now if you call yourself a Jew, so someone of the Hebrew lineage, a descendant of Israel, you rely on the law and boast in God. So someone who knows the law and the traditions and is proud of it. You know his will and approve the things that are superior being instructed from the law. So someone who has discernment, who knows the law and can apply it. Convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the ignorant, a teacher of the immature. Someone who sees themselves as a teacher, a shepherd, or a spiritual leader. Having the embodiment of knowledge and truth in the law. Someone who studies the law and knows it through and through. They can discern it, they can apply it. Not too bad so far, right? I'd imagine if you were reading this and this was describing you, you would be expecting some praises, some encouragement, and some blessings to follow, right? Not so fast. Paul shifts here in verse 21. You then who teach another, don't you teach yourself? You who preach, you must not steal, do you steal? 
You who say you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who detest idols, do you rob their temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Just got knocked down a couple pegs there, right? What is Paul describing here? And what does he mean by the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you? Paul is describing a hypocrite here. <clears throat> Someone who puts on the appearance of righteousness but does not practice it. The Jewish spiritual leaders at the time, they had all the right credentials. They knew the law, they taught it, they dressed the part, and from the outside, looked like they acted the part. They took pride in their position, they put their identity in the law, they placed their faith in the law, but they didn't keep the law. They would teach one thing and then do another. There was an inconsistency there. Paul says that the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of them. Meaning that the Gentiles, the unbelievers, saw the hypocritical actions of the spiritual leaders and then drew conclusions about the God that they served based on their actions. Their actions spoke louder than their words. This is probably a good spot to pause for a little self-examination and application. Although Paul originally wrote this to the Jewish leaders at the time, there's something we can glean from this as well. Are we modern-day Christians hypocrites? I'm not trying to sound harsh or make any accusations here, but just a good question that we should ask ourselves from time to time to keep ourselves in check, to allow the Holy Spirit to convict us if necessary. Do we look and appear one way, but our actions tell a different story? Are we as believers painting a picture of ourselves for those around us to see, but are we masking what's really going on inside? Do I tell our children to not do one thing, but then turn around and do it ourselves? What kind of example are we setting for the unbeliever around us? Or let's look at this from a different angle. Do we do the things that we tell others they should do? In a moment, I will turn to James chapter 2, verse 14. Here we get a clear picture of the importance of faith combined with works. Hypocrisy is not only doing the, doing the things that we say not to do. It can also be not doing the things that we say to do. As believers, we need to not only refrain from sin, but also do the things that the Lord commands us to do. Turn with me, if you would, to James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, 
without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person <clears throat> is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Faith apart from works is dead. It is not only what we believe, but do our actions back it up? Are we actively serving God's kingdom? I think this is the area that modern day Christian, the modern day Christian is most likely to fall into hypocrisy. Perhaps we can refrain from sin, at least to the best of our ability. Everyone will struggle with sin from time to time. That's not my point here. Refraining from sin is only half the battle. We must also serve the kingdom. Be doers of the word not just hearers. The 21st century Christian has so many things to be distracted by. Sure, we make it to church on Sundays and perhaps even open the Bible a few times throughout the week, but are we actively serving God's kingdom? Or are we too distracted by our jobs and our phones, social media, our hobbies, or our pursuit of wealth? This is the danger that Paul is warning of here this morning in Romans. It's not enough to know God's word. There needs to be follow-through. There needs to be action. Not only do we need to detest sin, but we also need to take joy in serving the kingdom. Verse 25, Circumcision benefits you if you observe the law, But if you are a lawbreaker, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if an uncircumcised man keeps the law's requirements, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? A man who is physically uncircumcised but who keeps the law will judge you who are the lawbreaker in spite of having the letter of law and circumcision. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, And true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and the circumcision is of the heart, by the spirit, not the letter. That person's praise is not from people, but from God. In verses 25 through 29, 
Paul references circumcision specifically as an example of an area where a covenant has lost its meaning because of the hypocrisy of the Jews. In a, mo in a moment, we'll look a little closer at circumcision, but we also have a great example this morning with the sacrament of communion to do a little self-examination. We as believers today run the risk of falling into the same trap as the Jews by exposing our own hypocrisy by our traditions, sacraments, or covenants. As we prepare ourselves for communion this morning, let's ask ourselves, are we taking communion just because that's what we do? Does the way that we live our life match the truth that we are proclaiming by taking communion? By taking communion, we're proclaiming Christ's death for our sins, his sacrifice so that we may live. If we are taking communion purely for the reason of tradition and then not living our life according to God's word, 1 Corinthians 11 says that we are eating and drinking judgment on ourselves. The act of communion means nothing if we're just acting the part but not living it as well. And this is the point that Paul's trying to make with circumcision in the text this morning. Throughout the Old Testament, you will see that circumcision was the sign and the seal of God's people. God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17, and in a moment I'll turn there. God's covenant that he, <coughs> that he would make Abraham the father of many nations, and Abraham and his offspring were to be circumcised. This covenant between God, Abraham, and his offspring was to be followed rigidly. It also set apart God's people from the pagans around them. And the Jewish people took this very seriously and took great pride in it. In Genesis 17, it says, When Abraham was 99 years old, the, God, God, the Lord God appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abraham fell on his face. I'm sorry, Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession." and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, <clears throat> after you throughout gen their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. 
every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So as you can imagine, circumcision was not something to be taken lightly in the Jewish community. It was the covenant with God made by their forefathers and carried out throughout the generations. So what is the point that Paul is trying to make here? It's not good enough to look the part. You must act the part as well. It is not just the physical outward appearance, but the condition of your heart. If you have all the markings of one in God's covenant, but you aren't acting the part, how are you any better off? The root of the problem here is placing your faith in the law and not in God. Going through the motions, but your heart isn't in it. Placing your trust in a tradition and not in Christ. There's a distinct difference between someone who is religious and someone who is a born-again Christian, is there not? When When we become born again, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within us and changes us from the inside out. It is no longer just about following the law or the traditions, although although these can be good things. It is about being transformed into the image of Christ. It's not about checking off boxes on your religious to-do list. It's a desire to serve God and be more like his son. This is what Paul is trying to get across to the Jewish people in Romans 2 here. And this is the message we need to hear this morning. It's not enough to show up to church on Sundays. It's not enough that you don't lie or steal. It's not enough that you give to charity. What is the condition of your heart? Are you doing these things because you are supposed to? Or because it's an overflow of who you have become? God in his great mercy has sacrificed his son to deliver us from our sins and from our former selves. He has given us his Holy Spirit and he has promised us eternal life. He will grant us grace to live according to his word if we submit ourselves to him in all things. The more that we submit to him, the more we'll be transformed into the image of his son. As we near the close Uh, of our sermon this morning, I would like to leave you with this encouragement from Colossians chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, 
passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one another, if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let us not only be hearers of the word, but doers as well. He has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He has equipped us with everything that we need to live according to his calling. Let us put aside the flesh and the things of this earth and pursue holiness and righteousness. Let our actions speak louder than our words. Our lives be a testament of him who sent us. Let us be diligent, church, diligent to confirm our calling here on earth until the time that he calls us home to his eternal kingdom. We have the opportunity to put our faith into action through the sacrament of communion together this morning. The sacrament of communion is not something to be taken lightly. As I mentioned before in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27, Paul says, So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. So communion is one way we can celebrate together the Lord's sacrifice for us. But in light of this morning's message, it's important to remember that the act of taking communion is worthless without the follow-through in our lives, without the circumcision of the heart. So here at Providence, if you have repented and placed your faith in Christ, then the communion table is open to you. In a moment, the worship team will come forward and start to play. And I would ask that the people in the back work their way towards the front to get the elements and we'll just all file up and be seated again. And then when we resume, we'll all take the elements together. Welcome to the Lord's table.